G'day and welcome to another episode of Spectrum Uncensored. Today I have with me Gabby Bond from Gabby Bond Psychology. She is a psychologist. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your background and what it is you do? So I'm a psychologist and I've been working um, in the industry now for four years. So I did my provisional internship um, for two years and I have been a psychologist for two years. Um, I've worked predominantly with the ND community um, and it's certainly an area of interest for me. Um, and yeah, it's certainly something that I very much enjoy um, working with the ND community. Have you got a, an ND background yourself? Like what got you into psychology? I do. So I have a very ND family. Um, so um, I have a big family. I have six children, um, all ND. So um, we've got um, some children that are autistic, ADHDers, um, autistic, um, bipolar, and um, one of our children um, just has an autism diagnosis. But there's also specific learning disabilities. There's trauma in there as well. That's quite a mixed bag. You have your hands full. <laughs> I don't yes. know how you balance uh, your professional <laughs> and your private life. I don't think I can yes. do it. But, um, yeah. I've and had a lot the... of people. Sorry, you continue. I was just going to say they're very much the reason why I got into psychology. Okay, yeah, I love yeah. that. There's pretty much everyone I talk to, um, they choose, they don't really choose the path, the path chooses them kind of thing. Like it's all, yeah. it all ties back to a personal experience or um, lived experience. So I think that's really Thanks. nice because it's it um, gives you a greater understanding of what you are getting into, I guess, and it's much more relatable to um to be able to say to somebody who's neurodivergent, I'm neurodivergent too, or my children. So I get, I get where you're coming from. And yes. um, it's that very um, neural affirming and all that kind of thing too, which is a big thing, um, especially yes. these days. And it should be kind of everywhere by now, but it's not. <laughs> so. Yes. Yeah. And it was actually through my own children and through um, working um, with the ND community that I realized that I was also ND myself. Um, which was actually a really lovely um, exploration um, to find out that I was also ND. Um, and it also made a lot of sense of why things when I was younger were hard. So it was certainly um, answered a lot of questions for myself, but also helped me explore with my own children their ND and my ND. I feel like that's just like the neurodivergent pipeline. Like it starts off with the kids and then slowly works its way through the rest of the family and <laughs> that kind yes. of thing. So, yes. yeah, it's, it's a very common quite, story. Yes, and quite often um, the assessments I was doing was on um, parents that their children had been assessed or even grandparents that their grandchildren had been assessed and they recognised in themselves traits so they also came along for an assessment. I imagine it would be harder with the older population as in the grandparents and things because um, of kind of the era they came from. It would have it would be kind of hard to, I don't know, get them on board with that. Maybe, as you say, it, it is that epiphany of seeing their grandchildren go through it and seeing themselves in their grandchildren a bit in what yes. they do. And, yeah, but yes. I, I imagine it would be a hard wall to break down. I think it was, and it's certainly an interesting exploration with them. Um, quite often, 
So with the parents, um, particularly the mothers, they would come in when they hit a burnout or perimenopausal and the same with the grandparents. So around that time, a lot of, um, in particular, ADHD traits can be very prominent. So a lot of brain fog, which already comes with um, perimenopausal and menopausal, but it's a lot more prominent when there's ADHD. Um, so they're all of a sudden being able to cope with um, things and all of a sudden they can't. So they find that anxiety and depression becomes a big impact as well. So um, they usually come in because um, a, they've either had children or grandchildren assessed, but also um, severe mental health concerns can also be another reason why they come because they really need that support and getting that understanding for why all of a sudden things have just become really, really hard. And it can be really hard to, to kind of grasp that whole, everything's really intense all of a sudden, like it, it just, yes. that's the only real way I can describe it is everything is you feel with great intensity and whether it's emotions or, or otherwise, but um, to all of a sudden have all those hormones and things at play too would just kind of exacerbate everything. Um, so it makes sense. Yes. yes, yeah, most definitely. And people aren't aware of the impact, especially female and assigned females at birth, that hormone impact um, with the ND community. It has a huge impact um, and it can really lead to things. So there's higher... Um, PMS, PMDD, but also things like endometriosis and um, um, endomosis. I've probably pronounced it wrong, um, but that's also something that I've recently realized that I have myself. So um, also things like people aren't aware that things like your um, vitamins and stuff like that can also have a huge impact. So um, again, through my own exploration, my own lived experience, things like being low in iron and vitamin D can be very big within the ND community, but it can also have a huge impact on your mental health. Yeah, and that is just, that's just it. Like it's always trying to balance out your body and things and there's so many facets to all of that stuff. Like I, they thought I had um, anemia, the doctors, but I have the opposite. I've got hemochromatosis. I've got too much iron in my blood, but it kind of yeah. mimics the same symptoms. So. Um, I had to get really sick on iron supplement before they realized, oh, wait, it's actually the opposite um, problem. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's tricky. And, and yeah, it, there's so many different things that affect, I mean, your brain just in general. Like yeah. it's, it's just, yeah, it's incredible just um, how much stuff ties into it. I mean, I, I've spoken to a few people who are ADHD and um, we kind of, the conversation kind of went along the lines of you can't fight your brain because your brain literally controls everything. So you're like, it's that internal battle of, of trying to level things out yourself, but yes. it's just not physically possible. <laughs> yes. And that's a very common experience that I'm seeing with a lot of um, my adult and even my um, children and um, teenage clients that the brain has a huge impact and it can take control and it ties into things. So I think people aren't aware of how complex um, ND is when it ties a lot into our sensory system, especially our interception, um, if, and that ties into our emotions. So when we're not aware that our intercept, of our interception differ, uh, differences, 
we can really struggle to understand our emotions, the emotions of others, and why all of a sudden we go from what would appear to be zero to 100 um, and become quite dysregulated. Um, and a lot of it is because we aren't actually aware of our own body signals before we actually become dysregulated. And it's when we become dysregulated, it can also be a sensory overwhelming experience, which unfortunately can lead us to be even more dysregulated. I found for myself, um, before I was diagnosed, I, in, I obviously had, I've spoken about it before on other podcasts, but I had a traumatic childhood. And so I just kind of plodded along, you know, trauma, trauma. That's why I do these things. Um, it wasn't until I got pregnant and the hormones went crazy that I really started to notice a difference and it all makes sense. Uh, it's, it didn't make me more neurodivergent. It just, it intensified all those feelings. Um, I ended up with postnatal depression, which I imagine would be super common because it's like an identity crisis, but then everything's out of routine and, you know, a baby is like the one thing that is not in routine. It's like the biggest spanner you can throw in the works. So, Um, I found myself, yeah, not able to cope very well with a lot of things. Um, You know, all of a sudden there's something touching you all the time, wants you all the time. Um, You can't, you know, take five minutes to to have a breather. You're not sleeping properly. So your brain is just going crazy. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) neurodivergent pregnancy and and post-pregnancy is, yeah, postpartum is uh, quite quite intense. Yes. And... That's exactly right. There's a lot of things that go when we become a mother. Change is um, a very dysregulating experience for the ND community, um, in particular autistic people, but ADHD people can also struggle with that change in routine. Um, Then the fact that there's also sensory stuff. So when there's a baby in your tummy and kicking and you're hot and um, because your body becomes warmer, um, it can be a very dysregulating experience. Um, but at the same time, obviously, it can be very, very rewarding. But there is a lot of um, support that's needed for an ND mum to make sure that they're supported because the um, support is so important. Um, with the ND brain, it's most definitely not about um, changing the person. It's about supporting them and supporting the environment around them because, um, like you said, the hormones can have a big impact. It doesn't make you more autistic. It just makes you struggle more with things that are going on at that time and with more support and understanding and can also come into things like um, making sure that the ND person is listened to, validated, understood what they're going through. Quite often their experience has been invalidated and they've been told to pretty much things like suck it up and just keep going and and those sort of things instead of being, okay, what can we do for you right at this minute to make your life so much um, feel easier because it is so dysregulating at times. I, I, as a child, I was often labelled as like a hypochondriac and things like that, yeah. and it, that was never what the, the case. Um, and as you say, like neurodivergent people going through pregnancy and stuff, it's it is it's different to a neurotypical person going through it. And had I known that I wasn't neurotypical, um, yeah. would it have been easier? Probably not, but in certain ways, maybe because I would have been more self aware and 
and being able to kind of pick up when I was burning out or when I was overstimulated or, you know, I didn't even know those kinds of words back then. So it's really hard if you're not educated, you don't really know what you're doing. And it's, it's funny that you said that ADHD has, can have just as many uh, issues with it because I feel like ADHD, people always think impulsivity and things like that, but it's yeah. still controlled impulsivity to a certain extent. You're choosing that impulse. You've got a baby yeah. and the, that's the baby choosing the impulse for you. So that's not it's still not in in your control. So I yes. feel like that's, yeah, that would be too, that's too much chaos. Yeah. And part of, um, so with ADHD, a part of the DSM-5, TR, um, there's no listing of sensory as a concern, but we do know that ADHD people also have a significant amount of sensory concerns as well. And also emotion dysregulation, they can also have communication difficulties at times um, and communication differences. So being aware that um, we may not have the language to explain what is going on for us, especially before we're diagnosed. And then afterwards, it allows us to have the language to say, ah, that's what's actually going on for me, but we still have to be taught that and explain that. So um, a lot of psychoeducation after a person is diagnosed is really, really important so that they can actually be aware of their experience. And it's individual, so we're going to have definitely individual experiences and it's going to be different if there's co-occurring um, conditions. So an autistic ADHD is going to have a different experience to an autistic person or an ADHD person. And then if there's other co-occurring things like um, mental health concerns or um, trauma, trauma can have a massive impact on our experiences. And also um, specific learning dis um, disabilities. And there's also high co-occurrence of OCD and Tourette's. So, um, there is quite a significant impact on all the co-occurring. Um, so it's about sitting with the person, learning their experience, listening to them so I can understand them and I can help support them to understand their own experience. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely like even every, we're always learning about ourselves no matter what, like until yes. the day we, you know, we pass, we will probably never fully understand ourselves. So it's every little experience that you go through, you know, you learn something new about yourself. So yes. I mean, I've had a lot of people ask about that aren't assessed yet that yes. have asked, you know, what is involved in an assessment for ASD, ADHD. So yeah. I, I was hoping you'd be able to touch a little bit on the process of that so that that kind of um, clears the air a little bit for these, these people that yes. have asked. Yep. So with the assessment process, so the assessment process that I undertake, so I have an intake session with the client um, and that can involve a bit of a clinical interview. So going through their experience, listening to them, understanding what's going on for them, asking them um, some questions about how they're experiencing their life. Um, if they can bring someone with them that um, also is supportive supportive is going to be really really important through the assessment process quite often um, they've they may have family that may not um, be aware of nd may have the old stereotype thoughts of nd and um, we just need to be aware there's many different presentations of how autism adhd other neurodivergence may look um, so yes the first 
um, session is just sitting down with the client, talking through with the client their experience. So quite often um, I do either face-to-face -face or telehealth appointments. Um, so that's Zoom so I can actually see because quite often it's really important to also observe um, some of their um, mannerisms. <clears throat> um, quite often their internal presentation and masking can also be a big impact too. So I have to be aware of all the different types of presentations and then the next step is having an autism assessment. So that may be a more um, longer clinical interview. I do what's called the MIGDAS 2. So that's a sensory interview. Other people may do the ADOS um, 2. That is not seen as, um, as gold standard anymore. So we're moving away, um, especially with your um, highly masked um, or internal presentation because ADOS can't quite pick up those internal um, presentation of highly masked. And then, sorry, I'll just go back to the intake. So through the intake, I'll, um, so they may come in because they think they may have ADHD traits. So I may also pick up that there may be some autism traits. Bearing in mind, um, autism and ADHD are very high co-occurring. So if someone is coming up in for an ADHD, um, I do explain that I will also consider autism and vice versa. So if they come in for an autism assessment, I also explain that I also consider ADHD as well and any other co-occurring. So OCD, um, mental health concerns, trauma. Trauma is one that I screen for um, because it's very, very common in the autistic community. So within the, so back to the MIGDAS. So the MIGDAS is a sensory. Um, so for the children and, um, and depending on the teenager's age, it's a bit of a sensory interview. I have some sensory toys around. I, um, and then I can ask a few other questions. So it looks at their sensory interests, their intense um, or special interests, um, and also uh, their communication and their relationships. Also, how they understand emotions, so which is quite interesting because with um, the autistic community, we may have a surface level or a sort of a, a, a understanding of okay, when someone's crying, they're sad. When someone is um, angry, they may look angry. But <clears throat> part of the emotions is actually recognizing whether they actually recognize their body signals. So whether there may be some interception concerns when it comes to understanding their emotions. So I look for those sort of things. So I also look for um, some of the subtle signs. So is there high masking? Is there um, potentially some um, difficulties or differences in their understanding of emotions, but also their communication style? So do they have a very direct communication style? Do they have, um, so with ADHD, um, it can be quite a interesting communication style because we might get from A to B, but we may deviate quite a bit to get to our point. Um, so that can be quite an interesting communication style. And I actually really enjoy the ADHD communication style because when I'm in sessions or in a, the assessment process, I actually get a lot of information from them. Um, not that I don't get a lot of information for autistic people, I do, but it's just, it can be quite an interesting communication style. Um, so then um, I move on to, so the ADHD assessment. So I do what's called the DIVA 5. 
So that, again, is a questionnaire. Um, and I do um, a very a little bit, it's like a bit of a structured interview, but then I ask lots of examples um, and get quite often both with the MIGDAS and the Diva 5. I can get information for, so in the MIGDAS, I might get information about ADHD traits and in the Diva 5, I may pick up some autism traits that, um, as well. So it's quite interesting doing the two. I can um, definitely get a lot of information. And sorry, I forgot to mention with the MIGDAS, um, with the adult and depending on the age for the teenagers, it's much more of a questionnaire, um, question interview type, but also still asking about their sensory. Um, so that I may ask what um, they might have in their hand or it's very noticeable. So if I'm doing a face-to-face, -face, I might notice that they might be playing with a necklace or I have lots of sensory toys in my room. So anyone that's been in my room, I've got a significant amount of sensory toys in the room and I leave them around for them to play with. So quite often, if it's highly masking, they may um, actually not, they'll be too um, concerned about picking anything up. But once they actually get into the interview or after the intake session, they start to feel more comfortable. So then you start to see them pick up um, sensory toys and play with them and, and stuff. So, and I have a variety of sensory toys. So I might have some metal, I might have some plastic, um, squishy, um, wooden ones. So I have a variety of different textures because through the interviews, you're looking at their sensory differences. So they may have texture differences, they may have food differences. Um, so really exploring those different difference, um, those sensory differences. Um, and quite often people think it's aversion to sensory stuff, but it's also can be a seeking behavior. So an autistic person may touch a lot. So they may be need to be in someone's um, personal space um, because that's what they're needing. They need that sensory input. Um, quite often we um, see um, autistic people not wanting touch, but they can actually, as long as the person's a safe person for them, they may also seek that sensory input from um, hugs and, and pressure. And again, we've um, got differences in our vestibular and our proprioception. So needing that movement can also be um, important too. So being aware when we're doing the assessment process, we're looking for all these different things. And then um, after, I also send through a um, range of questionnaires to get some extra information. So we may need, um, say the person's partner, um, if it's children and um, teenagers, uh, their parents filling in the questionnaires and depending on the age, they the children themselves may actually be old enough to fill in the questionnaires too. School, getting school involved. Um, report cards aren't as, um, aren't as in depth anymore, so we can't actually get as much information from report cards. But um, say an adult, they may also um, be able to have access to their report cards. So looking at that, because that can be quite interesting, because quite often, for example, an ADHD person on their report card would, would do better if they concentrated more or would do better if they didn't talk as much or, you know, things like, oh, they appear to be... Um, just trying to think of a teacher's term for dreamy and preoccupied. So those sort of things, you read it and you go, aha, uh -huh, there we go. <laughs> there is, because 
during the assessment process, especially if we're assessing an adult, we're also looking for that they experienced it in childhood. So part of the diagnostic criteria is that they did experience it as a child. That is really important to determine between um, things like autism and ADHD as opposed to a trauma experience. So because sometimes trauma, whilst is definitely co-occurring um if there if trauma is explaining the situation it would be that their their traits happen after the trauma so we're looking for before the only thing is if there's childhood trauma that can be difficult to determine but we do just a bit more questioning around that so within the questionnaires, I would also send out anything that I may consider co-occurring or a differential. So I may send out mental, um, sorry, I do send out mental health screeners, um, but I also send out um, trauma, um, interception, um, also disassociation. So dis disassociation is also a very common experience for the ND community. Uh, recent research has indicated 93% of autistic people disassociate and disassociation is an indicator of trauma. So that highlights that trauma is a very high experience within the ND community. I also, through the assessment process, I'm also looking at sleep. So sleep is also really important. Sleep disorders are very common in the ND community. So 80% of um, autistic people, 83% uh, ADHD people also have sleep disorders. And again, sleep disorders can also be an indicator um, of your chance of developing PTSD. So there is another indicator that PTSD is high co-occurring within the ND community. And then um, after I've got all my information, I then write up a report and then I get the person back in or the parents and depending on the age of the child uh, for a feedback session. So then we go through the feedback session. I go through the report. I... Um, Depending on the purpose of the report depends on the length of it. So if we have um, a autism diagnosis and the parents or the, themselves want to go for NDIS, my report will be much more in depth. Um, and so from that process, I'll go through, um, so with the assessment, um, I'll go through, sorry, the feedback session, I'll go through the results, talk through it, explain what I am seeing, um, but using and the affirming language. So that is really, really important. So I have a um, disclaimer at the start of my report. Um, with the DSM criteria, it's quite deficit-based, so it can be really, really hard to hear that language. Unfortunately for things like NDIS, I do have to use the criteria, um, but I do explain that that is um, not how we see it. I don't see it as a deficit. I see it as a difference. And it's really important that afterwards they receive ND and trauma-informed care. So one of my um, recommendations is always that they have an ND affirming or end, if, especially if there's trauma, um, and a trauma-informed um, therapist really important um, to have that in there because um, when we're looking at support afterwards it's about supporting um, and we're not trying to um, change the we can't change the brain stuff so 
we need support so that understanding of that and understanding of the fact that they're going to need maybe looking at the different environments, looking at aspects like masking. Um, and also one thing that I've missed with my assessment um, questionnaires, I also put in a masking questionnaire. So the CAT-Q is a good one. So I look for the masking internalised and presentation. Also, one thing that's really interesting is um, they're starting to see, so if someone presents with social anxiety, we should be looking and considering autism as a diagnosis as well, because quite often social anxiety presents quite um, prominently and we assume that it's social anxiety, but there's underlying um, autism and that's really important. Um, so, and then the feedback session, um, at the end, I, well, during the process, I ask them to ask me as many questions as they want. Quite often through it, I might, um, explain, um, some things as we go along, but in the feedback session is also giving them a bit of information, giving them some understanding of their, uh, ND, um, style, um, how if particular if there is multiple NDs, how they may interact and may um, cause some difficulties um, and in particular autism and ADHD quite often um, autistic people like that sameness that routine and that can actually be quite um, regulating for us but sometimes when we're burnt out and overwhelmed ADHD traits can come in and make that a lot difficult and that can cause a bit of distress so I can talk about things like that with them if I consider there's burnout if there's high masking those sort of things so I'll give them a bit of information about that as well. I was fortunate enough to have a psychologist assess me that was ND themselves. So yeah. I or automatically felt more at ease about it. Yes. Um, but you're right, like a lot of it is deficit based and yeah. it really, it'd be good if it was actually made to use neuroaffirming language instead, but it's, yes. we're literally using neurotypical language. Um, yes. So it's, yeah, it, it's a shame that we haven't gotten to that place yet. I think we will eventually, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like my ADHD is a bigger part of me than my ASD, if that makes sense. I find yes. that I have more battles with the ADHD side of myself. And yeah. I often think the best way to diagnose somebody with ADHD is literally put them in a room with somebody that has ADHD, get that ADHD person to tell a story. And if the person being assessed followed that story and was able to keep up, then they're ADHD too, because I... <laughs> I was just thinking about how you, you were saying that you love the way that um, ADHD is tell stories because it is. It's yeah. like you're just going to have a little segue over here and, you know, um, do a lot of side quests before we do the, the full, you know, the uh, intended quest. But I, I find that with my friends that um, R&D and specifically ADHD, we can talk to each other like that and it's very like, our conversations are all over the place, but we still get to the end and we absorbed everything and understood each other completely. Yeah. But I'm sure a neurotypical walking past would be like, what the hell is going on with that? <laughs> so, yes, like yep. a secret language. <laughs> yes. And that's, and that comes into, and it's really interesting. So the double empathy problem um, indicated that neurotypical and neurodivergent people um, really do have their own languages so it is quite interesting um, and 
when my children were younger, I used to um, go, oh, birds of a feather. So quite often without realising before they were diagnosed, they were around children like them. And as we got older, they also got diagnoses as well. And it made a lot of sense why my children were around their own neurotype. It's comfortable. It's easier. There's, there can still be conflict, but there tends to be less conflict. And if there is conflict, they tend to go, oh, you know, sorry. You know, it could be they both having a bad day and they, they just didn't have the communication to actually explain to each other. And quite often we can go from zero to 100 quite quickly. Um, there's so many different things that come into that. So, and quite often um, things like RSD and um, burnout, tiredness, those sort of things can really impact. So when an ND person is tired, they can be very dysregulated. And when an ND person is hungry, they can be dysregulated. And it's because sometimes they can't recognize those body signals that they're actually hungry. And, but then they, because um, ND people are bottom-up processes. So they actually, their sensory input um, has a big impact. So they actually can, um, their body, misses signals too so they may all of a sudden become dysregulated and they don't actually know where it's come from and the processing comes later so they can actually go maybe even an hour day week months years later and go ah oh, that's why that happened and and those sort of things so yeah i feel like that's where hangry came from it's a neurodivergent yep. thing 100 yep. most definitely like, yeah yep. you can just tell when your kids are hangry and it's like oh yep okay <laughs> we're, we're yep. going down this path but yeah it, it it's interesting because i usually ask um everybody that i interview that's an adult um with a neurodivergent diagnosis what um, their friends a lot because yeah. often we do levitate. Uh, I always say, oh, I don't click with that person, so they're not neurodivergent. Or I, I always, you know, we never fight or we get along so well, we must both be ND. So it's, you know, it's no different to, as you say, neurotypicals hanging out with neurotypicals. We just have our people yeah. and, you know, yes. eventually you find them. And you sometimes you had them all along and you didn't know that you levitated towards them, like you were saying with yeah. your children. So I look yeah. back now at high school and things and go, oh, man, that was full neurodivergent group. Like we had no clue, but 100%. Yeah. And quite often um, during the assessment process um, for female or signed female at birth clients, they may um, have gravitated to more male friends. So myself growing up, I mainly had male friends. Um, I felt more comfortable. <laughs> And I found that quite the uh, the gossipy and those sort of things that other females were doing, I didn't find comfortable. So, yes, whilst um, and because quite often, you know, um, with in in particular autistic brain, we're a lot more logical. Whilst females and assigned females at birth may be a little bit more emotional as well, but we tend to have quite that logical brain. So we tend to, um, and we love that deep dive conversation. So that surface level conversation, that social chit chat can be really, really difficult, but we love that deep dive into a topic and that can be quite regulatory for us. And I feel like we mature quicker too. Yep. Like I know that women yep. or females or females assigned at birth generally mature quicker than men or men assigned at birth. Yes. But 
Um, but I feel like it's, it's intensified even further for neurodivergent, um, females. So it, yeah, I, cause I remember getting told that a lot. Oh, you, you're so mature for your age. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, I went through this and I went through that. But, um, I think just from what I've noticed with the people I talk to, it's like, oh, I couldn't pick your age because you're just a lot more mature beyond your ears, like the old, old soul type thing. Um, and you find that a lot in kids yes. too that are neurodivergent they've got a very old soul and yeah yep. like almost like my, little grumpy old men and women <laughs> <laughs> most definitely and a lot of my um child and adolescent clients are very much more mature than their age um and one thing i did say i love working across a lifespan so i actually work with children adolescents and adults so i actually see across that lifespan so it's really quite interesting to see um and yes they definitely are and they've quite often been told that they're old souls they're very empathic so um they can also pick up on the emotions of others they can also pick up their neurotype there's been several times that my clients have mentioned to me that they thought I was autistic um, themselves bef- before I was actually um, starting to tell that I was an ND psych. Um, so, yes, yeah, they certainly know their own neurotype um, and they do prefer to be around their own neurotype because it's so much easier for them. There's still conflicts, there's still communication differences, um, even within our own neurotype, but that's, like I said, more often than not, we are more comfortable around our own neurotype. This is human nature, isn't it? Like we're all humans, so we're all going to have conflicts and and everything. But I guess I'll I'll finish up with the question of why um, you believe your profession is so important. Yes. I think it's really important, um, especially from the ND affirming and the trauma informed practice. So coming from that really ND affirming, um, and looking at, um, supporting. So psychology can be so important for helping us understand our brain style, understanding what supports we need and really in, I actually enjoy working with NDIS clients because I love that building capacity support. So. Um, from that side, we can really just do so much to help them understand who they are and help them to um, build those support networks around them. And and just it's so important that we become, but we come from an ND affirming and a trauma informed practice. It's it's definitely a very holistic thing. Psychology. It, yes. It's touches on every aspect of your life so it is a very important um profession and yeah everyone i think needs to see a psychologist i don't think um you need to have had trauma to need to go and see a psychologist i think it's um something everybody should do it's definitely um got a lot of benefits to it but thank you so much for coming in today and having a chat with me um I'd love yes. to have you back at another time. We'll, we'll, we can discuss some myths and things like that around yes. lots of different things. Um, I'd love to chat about yep. more in depth about masking and RSD and things like that. Yes. I think that um, yep. that's something that should be um, spoken about more and more awareness raised about it. But um, I yep. really appreciate you coming in and having a chat. It's been lovely to be here. Thank you very no much. Worries. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Bye.